Hello and welcome to the Mental Health Shelf podcast. My name is Jamie Skinner and in this podcast I invite guests from all sorts of backgrounds to bring and discuss five items or symbols which they believe have brought them joy, escape or have generally contributed to good mental health in their lives so far. These items can be absolutely anything the guest wants, seashell, 3D glasses, ice cream maker, calculator for example, and then they get put on a non-existent shelf. It's a kind of metaphor for something to look to when the world is getting a bit stressful because if there's one thing any successful podcast has its celeb gossip and culture and then maybe true crime and murder stories some politics and then somewhere in that list eventually is a metaphor and that's what the mental health shelf is presumably anyway this month enough of that this month i'm joined by magician gabriella lester who i kind of found recently when just stumbling down various youtube rabbit holes you know when you kind of just watch one set of videos like how to decorate a cake and eventually you're in a completely different tangent somehow watching videos of people cleaning ovens it was a bit like that but with magic so i was watching some pen and teller videos and then eventually came across her channel some have watched a number of her performances and thought this is a fascinating person i need to talk to them um so sent off an invite and very very, very thankful that she said yes to coming on the podcast. Uh, very much looking forward to talking to her. And so let's just get into it, shall we? Enough of my waffle. Here is the mental health shelf of Gabriella Lester. On this month's edition of the Mental Health Shelf podcast, it's great to welcome a member of various magic circles who have awarded her titles such as Close-Up Magician of the Year and Originality Magician of the Year, one of the youngest performers of Houdini's Upside Down Straight Jacket Escape, and someone who has performed in Hollywood, Vegas, and in front of Penn and Teller. That person is Gabriella Lester. Welcome. Hey, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm not too bad, thank you. Sli- slightly tired myself, but still. <laughs> yeah? Uh, what time is it where you're at? Uh, it's just gone 11 o'clock at night. Okay, okay. But let's jump in. Let- let's talk about you. Obviously, that's why we're here. Um, and I want to start with this video that I saw of you. Um, it mentioned there you're one of the youngest people to perform Houdini's Upside Down Straight Jacket Escape. And I saw this video of you in what looked like a school canteen. You're tied to a chair, loads of ropes around you. Was that just something that you did growing up at school? You know, it it, it was, and it is not as cool as it sounds now. Uh, but I was very much a headstrong young kid. And when I started getting into the world of escapes, I really that was one thing that I really learned through performance. When uh, So I took 100 feet of rope to school one day, which for people who aren't familiar with Houdini, he had this famous escape where people could tie up with 100 feet of rope. He would get out. I had no frame of reference, no idea how to do it, what to do it. But I just figured the only way to do it is throw yourself into the lion's den. So I brought the rope to school. I made it and had them make an announcement in the morning saying, Gabriella's doing magic in the hallway again today, um, if you guys want to see. So that was it. It had built a crowd, obviously, because there was a kid being tied to a chair. And at the time, I had no idea if I was going to get out or not. But I figured if I had my whole school watching me in some way, I'd figure it out. And I, obviously, I did in the performance. And a couple of kids had filmed it because it was this weird oddity to see. And uh, that's kind of where it started, just jumping the gun and trying things out. I mean, first of all, of course, the balls on you. I mean, I could have never done that at school myself. Um, and of course, that has to lead me on to, because of course, that's in front of all your peers. Just, I don't know how many people went to your school, but you're doing it as we say, kind of in the canteen, loads of people surrounded by you yeah. or surrounding you. Was that anything that you comprehended or was it just you were so focused on that trick at that time? 
I think at the time I was really just focused on what I was doing and I didn't really care so much about, you know, I mean, what I would say the background noise of what people were saying and thinking because I was so fixated on, on the school and I performed for the school all the time. And I think I went through phases um, in my career and in that personal life, whereas when I was the, you know, cute kid or ninth grader doing card tricks, it was whatever. It was, oh, this, she does some magic. That's kind of cute. And as the more I try to do bigger and unique stuff, that's when you started getting the different opinions of that's weird or that's not normal or you should stick to that or stick to that. And I got that feedback from both friends, peers, kids in the school. And then in my like magic life for mentors say, no, you are young, stick in this one direction, keep doing this thing, you know, keep doing the card tricks, keeping, you know, young and simple and don't, you know, dive into that world of the unknown. But for me, it was, I was always just really focused on doing, doing things that were different, doing things that were big and, you know, trying to create all these different things. So for me, that was really a, a personal goal. And, and I just kind of tuned out the rest of the background noise. But those videos aren't because people were impressed. I don't have that footage because people thought it was cool. People definitely thought it was strange or weird or abnormal. Obviously, now, you know, that perspective has shifted because I've, you know, kind of built something out of it. But that took years. Was there anything that you did to try and rise above that more negative chatter so to say when it came to listening to mentors as you mentioned yeah i mean i think that was probably the first moments in my life i think i was 13 or 14 at the time where i really started to just trust my gut when i started to realize that because i've been doing magic for about i'd say 10 years now so I think for a long time, because I've just been this like hotshot kid kind of growing up in the industry, there's been a lot of the cooks in the kitchen, like a lot of different opinions on go this direction, do that, do that, do that, do that. And a lot of just feedback that I had to adapt and learn quickly that if I didn't trust my gut and follow, you know, what I felt in my core was the right way to go right or wrong, you know, in the future that I would, you know, get way too overwhelmed by all the feedback that was going into it. So that was my first trust your gut decision and it, and it worked out. <laughs> Because I got into, with what I do now, so I'm at this radio station that's next door to the school that I went to, and I kind of got there at maybe about 12, 13, that's when I roughly started. And despite anything that may have happened at school, that was always kind of like a safe place, like some big form of escape, no matter how much ridicule you get, it was difficult to leave because, as I say, it was that safe space. Was that what you found with magic? I think in some sense, definitely in the community, it was a place where I just really belonged. Like I felt like I never had to, you know, I was never felt like an outsider looking and waiting to sit at the table, waiting to talk to the people. I was really, you know, involved and really welcomed in all aspects of the community because they all kind of saw me grow up within it. So for me, yeah, it was it was my friends, my families, my peers. And that that, yeah, still is now just my little safe haven of people that that really appreciate who I am as a person what's that like for you it's amazing I think it's a really really beautiful thing and I and I remember the first time I'd gone to this magic school in Vegas uh, when I was 14 and it was like my first time being around magicians and that for me was like okay there's this world of people that get it and I felt really isolated in the first few years of it because it was really just this thing and this battle that I was fighting on my own. And all of a sudden, this door opened up to a world of people that that got it and understood it. And magic's a very unique passion um, or a unique hobby because it's all about secrets. You know, the most beautiful, interesting parts of it you can't talk about with anyone else. Your friends can never relate. Your family can't relate. They can enjoy it and appreciate it, but from a different, very different perspective to you. So being able you know, to have 
have other magicians at the time as a kid in my life was was really really important and i and it was all of those experiences were the first times in my life where i saw tears of joy of just happiness of feeling a part of something when it comes to talking to of magicians particularly as you say in terms of putting yourself out there more and more over the years what kind of stuff did you do did you say to build up those conversations to get yourself into that circle more you know, it, it never felt like I had to try hard. In that world, it was really I could be whatever version of myself that I was at the time, and they were, like, accepting and supportive of it. I And I think for me it was they. I wasn't trying to make it further. You know, I wasn't trying to have certain dinners or conversations with people to advance myself or my career. It was all about the passion. It was all about this thing that I love to do. So I think that helped in some sense. I think in, in any industry, when there's hierarchies of celebrities or stars or people that have made it where you want to be, it becomes very easy to have the the feelings of using people or trying to meet people to get further or to say you did this or to have the photo or have the dinner or the conversation. Whereas for me, it was, I loved it all the same. I just wanted to talk and share what I did with other people that understood it and make it further. And I think that made who I was, you know, as a kid and a person a bit more genuine and authentic because it really just was about the connection and not the goal setting. Mm. Uh, you've mentioned it kind of here and I saw another interview where you mentioned that you want to do performances that are uniquely you, uh, even embracing, as you called yourself, the weird kid who tied herself to a chair in the hallway. How long <laughs> did it take for you to realize and embrace this? What, how, what is uniquely you? Um. I think it's changing because I mean, even now I'm still young. So who I'm at, who I am as a person is changing pretty rapidly. So I think it's being okay with kind of identifying where that is and where I am at and letting like who I am in my career shift as well pretty quickly. Um, so it's, 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 it's a battle of navigating that all the time, but it's really listening to those gut feelings and those inside voices of all these ideas and letting them be where you are. Like, it's never going to be perfect. And I think, you know, my art, my profession, and these things that I create are just like landmarks in time of where I was throughout my life. And I need to be less fixated on creating this perfect thing. Like, here's my brand, here's my image, this is who I am, because it's not that. It's just who I am now. And five years from now, it could be the same or it could be completely different. But I need it to let it be okay with it just being, you know, like I said, a landmark of where I was. Do you tend to look into the future then, or are you very much someone who's kind of in the present, in the moment? Always been very fixated on goal setting and setting big goals for myself and looking towards the future because I've, you know, I'm a dreamer and, and what I do is currently living my dream. So I've been setting, you know, all these goals and looking into the future for this thing that I want to create. But I mean, in the last year or two, I've been a lot more focused on just trying to enjoy where I am now. Because if you told, you know, that kid in the hallway where she'd be now, she'd be pretty darn stoked so just taking the time to enjoy that you had a huge smile on your face just then when you said that you were living your dream is that something that you think about quite often yeah i i definitely think in the last year or two it's really been something that's that's dawned on me and you know when we talk a little bit later about some of these items that i brought today it was a lot of these bucket lists and goals that i made as a kid of this is what i want in my life these are all the things i want to achieve and now you know five or six years later i've got them and that's just a, a really really crazy thing for me to be able to take that in and uh when I'm in my performance headspace or I say like, you know, my hustling mind of trying to get to the next, trying to do this, trying to do that, it's really easy for me to forget 
you know, and just be proud of where I am and proud of the little steps and take that all in. So I, I, I try and say as much as possible and remind myself as much as possible that, that where I'm at now is where I always wanted to be. So whether I go further or not, I should just be happy. You mentioned there your performance headspace. And one of the things that I like to ask people in any form of performance is when they're on stage or when they're just performing, how much of them is in that? And particularly with you in terms of magic and you saying you want to make something that's uniquely you, how much of you are you presenting on stage? Or is there a slight variation to Gabriella Lester in everyday in the everyday world? Yeah, I mean, I try and make who I am on stage is similar to who I am as a person, just a bigger version of yourself. And, and you know, that takes some work, especially, you know, as you evolve as a person. But, you know, realistically, I would say if you came to my show and you saw me perform, it would be a similar reflection to who I would be off stage. It's just a, a bigger, brought up version, like I'm more on the fly. I'm, you know, a little bit all of, as a performer, I'm very, you know, sarcastic and sardonic and that quick wit. And that's very who I am as a person. So you get you get a good uh, amount of that realistically. So I, I work towards being authentic on on stage which is it's a lot harder than it sounds does it give you a freedom to be more yourself it it does but it it, it also gets you thinking really hard uh, about who you are as a person because I, I you know i started to notice the more i started to be really myself on stage saying the things that came to mind you know starting to do more of a uh, now I perform more of like a stand-up style, like I'm a bit more quick-witted. I'm having fun with the audience, having a conversation, which is really just me, and I love it. Uh, but when you have those bad shows and that bad moments, it's hard not to take it out on yourself because it is just you. What you're putting out there is yourself, and if people don't like it, in some sense, you know, through steps of connection, it's they're not liking you. You know, you're not this character going out and playing this role. They're not disliking this image or this person they're seeing. They're, they're disliking this moment or that, and that came from you, so... I think it, it makes my performances feel a lot heavier sometimes because they're directly drawn to me. So being able to kind of cut those ties and, and be myself without taking the negativity too hard. When you do have a negative experience where if you do kind of start to kick yourself, how do you move on from that? Is there any way that you try to progress and improve? What what's How do you react effectively? It's... It's hard. It's mm. really, really hard for me to not take a bad show and have it tear me apart because I, I really, really care about what I do. So in the moments where I don't do well, it really weighs on me. So I'd say half of that comes from the people around me. I've got a really good group of, you know, my, my family, especially like my, my mom and dad and my friends, like they, they have a good way of saying the right things to me after a show to kind of snap me out of it. And because I've doing it long enough now, I can say I can't remember the bad show or bad moment I had five years ago. It's just it's it's gone away. So it doesn't matter as much. And you have to remember that as bad as it seems to you, it's way less bad to the audience. And you always internalize things a lot harder when you're the person in, in the light, when you're the person on stage. So I can't say I have all the tools because it's it's still really weighs down. I mean, it's still something that I'm working through as an individual, but it's it's being able to talk about it and accept that sometimes you're going to have those shitty things and talking it through with the people you love and just getting on stage again. The most important thing for me is just getting back up there and doing another show because uh, it usually goes away at that point. Is it easy to talk about them and how they've made you feel? 
Yes, I, I, I think so. Um, and I think once I start like actually saying those words out loud, it, it seems like a little bit less because, you mm -hmm. know, you just say, oh, you know, I said this line and it really didn't resonate. And I think I lost them after that point. But this worked and this worked and this worked. So we're fine. And at the end of the day, you know, everyone's still alive. Your head's still on. That's a good show to me. <laughs> Let's move on to the items onto your mental health shelf. The stuff that uh, brings you joy and escape uh, in those maybe more negative moments. Uh, is there anywhere in particular that you'd like to start? Um, yeah, let's let's start with the bucket list because I brought that up a little bit earlier. I mean, I, I have it. This is a little bucket list uh, that I made. I'll show it to you because you can see it. So essentially for the people listening, it's this dinky little piece of paper that I wrote when I was like 12 and these colored markers of all the things that I wanted to achieve uh, in my life as a magician. And it has everything that's kind of branching from have a conversation with a magician to do a show in Vegas to talk about this or try this trick, build a website to have a promo video, like all these different unique things, including doing pen and teller and stuff. And um, obviously everything, not obviously, but luckily everything for me is, is crossed off the list now. And that's a, a very, very cool feeling for me to be able to say, like to take that it, it helps me remind what it was like to be that kid setting these goals. And this is something, it's in my room. I take it with me. I look at it every day because for me now, when I'm goal setting, it's really easy, like we said earlier, to set those big goals to say, oh, I want this show. I want this TV show. I want this stage. I want this interview. I want all these things and forget kind of about those little goals of, hey, you know, it would be really cool to talk about this this summer, do this. And it reminds me to set little goals and be proud of those little goals that, hey, you know, the day I rehearse this thing and it, it looks cool, the day I connect with the kid in the audience, those are all really, really big achievements and have a much longer standing value. You say that you take this with you pretty much everywhere you go. And I saw just then, you know, as you said, all the colored markers and pens and pencils that have gone over that crossing off each and every item on this uh, small bucket list. You say you were 12 when you made it. I was, yeah. What? What's the feeling like, particularly even now when you're setting smaller goals, what's the feeling like when you're able to cross something off? I, it's hard. It's, it's hard for me to feel reward in goals. I think when this came to a full completion, it was a really, really good feeling. And looking at it now that everything is done, it's a very, very cool feeling because it, it helps me remind me, like remember where I was at the point that I made it. Uh, but I've always had a hard time feeling accomplishment from goals. That's why I really try to, like I mentioned, focusing on the little things. Uh, like I put it in perspective the way I talk about it with some of my peers. It's like goal setting for me has always felt like you're chasing this cookie on the end of a stick and you're running after it for so long and you finally get it and it tastes like a carrot or and you feel nothing. And you look around and you see all these beautiful mountains and sceneries and wonderful people and all these things that you missed because you were running you were going 200 to get there and you don't feel anything from it so i've worked really hard over the last you know little while to be able to be okay with slowing down to be able to say it's okay if i get there a little later i'm going to do a 360 at every take step i take and take all of this in because that's we you live for all that stuff you don't live for the accomplishments and accolades it's about all of those really special moments along the way so now when i'm setting goals i have to really taken all the steps that it is to get there you know if i, if I want to have this award or this tv show or this interview be proud of every conversation you have getting there take that in be stoked about that so that's kind of what i've learned from that and it's it's just trying to remind me to you know no one says i have to be a superstar by the time i'm 20 it's okay with slowing down sometimes 
Is it easy to kind of acknowledge those smaller things or notice them when they come along? Is it something that you write down as well to notice those or is though are they just things that crop up in the moment? Yeah, I, I, I write a lot and I really try and like internalize everywhere I am. I do a lot of just sitting and taking in my scenery and, you know, listening to music and such. And if we were to kind of branch into the next item, I have a journal with me um, to kind of get into that. I write a lot all the time. And that's something that's always come very naturally to me. And I have probably a hundred journals that aren't neatly written or neatly organized. They're not categorized. They're just thoughts and ideas and concepts and poetry and songs and all these just different accumulations of where I'm at in my life. And for me, it's, I I write all of that down. So that kind of helps me internalize the good, the bad, the ugly, all of, you know, the things that are really just a reflection of where I am in my life at this point. Uh, So that would be, I mean, branching into that would be my next most beneficial tool is having any, any form of writing pen on paper. Well, let's move on then and uh, talk a bit about the journal if you want to. Yeah, I mean, I have one here. This is not a special one. I have many of them. Um, like I said, they're they're just kind of like a scatterbrain thought of everything where I am. It's building acts, writing down goals, sketching, drawing things. And I've I've always just been a big advocate for writing, and it's one of the biggest vices in my life. Um, people around me know, like I don't I don't drink or smoke. I'm not a partier. For me, I've always really worked hard to take. You know, even if it takes longer to heal or however I have to do it with it, I really try and work towards having slow, healthy vices to get through things. And writing's been one of the biggest tools for that. And it and it's never felt like an obligation. I've always wanted to be a really good reader and get into reading, and I try. But in some senses, it's always felt like an obligation. Like, okay, you got to pick up a book. You got to, you know as much as I can love it once I get into it but writing has just been a very you know natural thing it's like just a natural accessory to me to have a journal and write all of these different things and I like I said I have I have so so many now and I write all the time every day is it a place to kind of just splurge all of your thoughts to kind of clear your mind in that way as well Yeah. And I think for me, it's one of the biggest tools I have for, you know, growing as an individual, because a lot of the times, like when I put those thoughts down, it really helps me navigate how I actually feel about them. Like as much as I have it in my head, I put it down, then reading the words, I'm like, okay, so this is how I feel about this. This is what this looks like and all those things. And, and it's kind of like that saying that, you know, once you say something out loud or you tell someone, it takes a lot of the weight off of that. I'm a bit of an introvert when it comes to like processing the things in my life and feelings. So using the journal as a tool is really like, what takes a lot of the weight out of the things that I go through and kind of helps me analyze them better. There's so much of this so far that I just want to say the words I agree, but I realize that wouldn't make a good interview. Um, so instead, I'll say, because you've mentioned here you like writing things down, you like having it around you. And, you know, I've got so many notebooks knocking about for, you know, films or th- that I've seen, yeah. press screenings. I've got, I got literally some of the questions here for the podcast written down in front of me. <laughs> Is it important that you have it physically there with you instead of, you know, just on your phone or on a laptop? Yeah, I I think so. And I mean, I have a a trillion notes on my phone that probably don't make any sense or voice memos or something. But I've always been a stickler for pen on paper and actually being able to see the words and write it out. And I I, I like the feeling of my hand hurting and I'm like, okay, we did it kind of thing. So it's it's always been having a physical journal with me. And the best thing about that is like I have a stack of journals in my room and that there is like this is the last you know, four or five years of my life, you know, through a timeline of how I feel and having it on like a, a laptop or a phone, I think, you know, they're, what are you going to put it in folders and like date it? I, I feel like I just like having the physical journal as like, this is a lab of where I was at at this time, as messy or as complex as it is. It's just, it's a really, really good piece of that. Do you look back on your old journals? 
I do sometimes. <laughs> Can't say I'm very proud of myself all the time, but that's how it is. I mean, you you write all these silly things when you're a kid. So if I were to look at back things that I write in high school, they're they're quite ridiculous. But it, you have to accept that that's that's what it is. That's how you felt at those times, and those are their feelings. And I. And nothing you ever create in the past is going to be perfect because you're always better as you keep moving forward. Well, hopefully you're better as you keep moving. I try. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do sometimes flip through them. I mean, they're they're in my space all the time. So, Do, do you feel that you've become better, I guess, is the question. I certainly hope so. I work really hard at it. So I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, uh, even now, like who I was, you know, six months ago versus now, I hope is a better version of myself. And I try really hard. And part of the writing is like, how how do I analyze my feelings so they don't weigh on me? Like how do it's, I think there's a quote I read that was like, do not let the things that have hurt you turn you into a person that you're not. Stay soft. And for me, it's like, how do I internalize the things that I've been through in my life and but not have them ruin my life or weigh over me forever? And it doesn't mean you can't have bad days or bad feelings or you have to put all these things in a little box. It's like, how do you actually do the nitty gritty hard work, get through all that stuff to in turn become a better person through it and use it to keep moving forward. So I try to do that. I, so I hope it has made me a better person. But yeah. Does it help to kind of build up and almost remember previous bits of advice or just relearn from your past experiences as well so that you're able to build up those skills to deal with as you say just there the nitty-gritty uh yeah I mean it, it's one of those things that especially for me to you know have those proud moments of myself to be able to look through some of the harder moments where I, I was writing to look like this is where you were at like kid look at this like you you were hurting here you were feeling these emotions here feeling these feelings or you were having this impossible time and you're here now and for me I'm always here now and being able to look back on those things as a reminder of the progress that you made or the feelings that you have or the evolution you made as, as a person internally, you know, after you've done all that hard, you know, soul, soul work. Uh, I, I like that. I like going back to be able to, to see the progress there. And uh, it's sad, you know, it can be sad to look back because it, it's that whole like inner child thing. When you see yourself as a younger person, you see the pain that you went through as a human being, but it's also a really good reflection that no matter what's gone on there, you know, you, you can get through it and there are ways to get through it. And time is the healer. Is there a particular point when you go back to them or is it almost just whenever I'm going to pick one off of the shelf? Yeah, I mean, I think on those days where I have reminders of those moments or things that I've been through or anniversaries or certain things come out, then then you kind of look at them as a reminder. Sometimes you add like a, like there's some journals that I go back to add through them. Some of them are finished. Some of them are not finished. Some of them were done chronologically. Some of them were written as a story. So there's sometimes I will go back if I want to kind of reprocess those feelings or look over things. But yeah, I mean, sometimes when I, when I go through my house and I see one there, I kind of flip through it and I laugh or I chuckle or I call myself a, a, an idiot or I go <laughs> whatever it is at the time, just be like, yeah, but uh, they're, they're all feelings in the past. So, you know, you, you got to just accept that that's, that's what they were. Can you just talk a bit more about how you update some that have been going for years? I know you mentioned just there that some of them are a bit like a story. Uh, how do they form? Yeah, so I mean, there, there's like some moments in my life and things that I've been through that I, I guess like I started a journal when I went through that thing, like say I, you know, I went through this experience or I lost this person or something and I started a journal to kind of analyze those feelings. So I think as my feelings progressed, you know, that journal would kind of be like, go back and write about those feelings and write about those feelings. And sometimes for me, it's been like, yo, it's a, it's a, it's been a year since you thought about that or read that journal or process that let's, let's fill it in. Like, let's fill in some of the good too, because a lot of that was just analyzing 
today was an impossible day. You know, I went through this or I went through this. So for me now, it's important to go back and add, this is where you're at now. So that five, 10 years version of me from now can see that, you know, physical progress of me getting through the, the hard thing. So as much as I say, like, they're all kind of cluttered and full of random things, I do have a journal or two that are kind of, you know, fixated towards certain things in my life. Shall we move on to item number three? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we are going to talk about fixated things in my life, um, I have this. They're all physical items, I think, so far. But this is a, a metal ring. Uh, this is from Penn & Teller's Fool Us, actually. And this was the the clip that they had my feet hooked into when I was upside down. So this was the thing keeping your girl from falling on her head. And uh, I think at, at the time, it, it was less about, you know, this was the safety item. I've done this uh, effect many times, so more of like what it signified for me. And that performance took place in a really tricky part of my life that I haven't dove into too much talking about. Uh, but for me, it was it was a really good reminder. Like Penn and Teller was the last thing on that bucket list I had as a kid. It was the last thing that I wanted to do. It was a lifelong goal, as you can say, for a kid to achieve something like that. And it happened during a really impossible time in my life. Um, to skim the surface of that, I had been in a relationship at the time. And the person that I was with had passed away the day before I was meant to fly out for my performance. And obviously I, I went and I did it. And it was this impossible thing for me to, you know, experience the grief of someone so close to me that, you know, I truly loved, but still do this impossible thing. And it was a really, you know, I think after the performance, I was feeling, you know, kind of beat knocked down. I obviously didn't do my best. My, my emotions were all over the place, nerves, grief, you know, pain, sadness, all these things. And, the rigger came up to me after the show and handed me this, like he'd unclipped it, unscrewed it, everything just so I could have this as like a trademark from the show. And obviously no, you know, no one on the team had known what I had gone through. But for me, I like, it was I like having the second I got this in my physical hand and I, I looked at it, I was like, you know, this is a, a thing that I did. And it's not about how great I did. It's the fact that I did it. And I just remember when, the, when the episode finally came out, I was like, I was just sobbing. I think tears of joy. I'm not exactly sure, but I was just so emotional about the fact that that I did it, that I had gone through to me what was you know the hardest thing that I'd been through in my life, and still in turn do this thing that was already impossible on its own, that was already really difficult for me to do on on my own. And uh, yeah, it, it reminded me a lot of things. It reminded me that I could you know grieve and live at the same time. And in life, you can't always wait for like something to get better before you move forward and do the next thing. It's okay to kind of have those bad feelings and navigate them while you still do something that's good for you. And uh, I was really grateful that I had that performance because having something that was important enough for me to get up and do is what got me through that. Uh, yeah. Was it something that the effect of was felt more when rewatching it when it was finally broadcast? Yeah, I, I do think I felt it a lot more afterwards. I don't think until it actually came out, I actually processed that that was a thing that I did. Mm -hmm. Like all of those feelings, I think, were, were put into a little box. And I was in, on the road for about six months following that. So I never really got to like deal with the fact that that was something that I did. But like looking back, it was crazy. Like I even now the grown individual, you know, who's this is a year or two later, I look back in the future and I, I, I can't even imagine, you know, being the strong person that did that at the time. I, it, I'm terrified. If you told me that was something I had to do now, I'd, I'd be horrified. I don't know how that younger version of me, of me did it, but having that come out, come out was, uh, 
It was really, really remarkable for me. And, you know, as much as I don't love the performance, or I look back on it, it is really, a really, really beautiful reminder of something that I did in my life when there was hell around me. Is it all right me asking why you don't love the performance? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, probably very critical as most artists are of everything that they do. And I, it was what it was at the time. Mm. You know, I, I would have, you know, loved to be more of myself or get more in it. I would have loved to enjoy it. And I think, you know, aside from what had happened, you know, in my personal life, I don't know if you can ever really truly enjoy something like that when there's just so much going on. I mean, for magicians, you know, performing in front of Penn and Teller is a huge deal, no matter how established you're on your career. So I feel regardless of what I went through, it's I still probably wouldn't have been stoked about what I did, but I'm also, you know, young and evolving and things are changing. So I just have to kind of accept it for what it is. But I could watch any, I could watch a performance video myself from last week and still wish that I did better, but you got to still have the good feelings too. Mm. Cause you were 18 at the time, right? Uh, yes, I was. Okay. And this is coming from someone who obviously is far from the world of magic. Um, but watching that, because that was, I think, like with many people, how I became aware of you from seeing it on YouTube and probably binging a couple mm -hmm. of Penn and Teller for us videos. And that that was the first, obviously you saying that there about the stuff that you'd been through beforehand. The first I knew about it, because that's a great performance from what I can see. And, you know, seeing Penn and Teller, they're clearly impressed as well. And, and I hope you don't mind me saying this. No, no, take it, take it all. It... I, I could be a narcissist. You, know? <laughs> you saw my wall. You saw my wall. Do you know how many pictures I have of myself? Uh, but no, no, I, I, I do appreciate it. I, I don't know all the time if I know how to take praise and admiration, but, mm. but I try and I appreciate that. Because that that was part of the reason. Because then I delved more into some of your stuff. I was like this, this person's great, and you know, at that age as well, and performing, going out there, doing that. But yeah, in front of Penn and Teller, you did that trick. They were clearly impressed. And I sat there, I was like, how the hell was that done? Come on. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate that. <laughs> no you keep the hook, obviously, as you say. And do you think about both the good and the bad when you look at it? Or do you tend to think more about the good? Or, or maybe the bad? Yeah, I, I would say with, with that one, I, I definitely really fixate on the good. Like all the, again, like I'd say background noise from it and all the other things, I, I kind of tune them out. It was a, it was a huge thing for me to do. And, and I did it the way, the best that I could have done it at that time, where I was in my career, where I was in my life. I put my best foot forward and I did my best. I rehearsed for hours and hours and hours and weeks and months and months to, to get to that point. So I'm I'm proud of it, and with that one, I just I look at the the good. I don't let myself critique on that one. I just I let it be what it was and, and move forward with my life because I did my best, and that's all you can ever do as a human being. Good. Would you do it again? Yeah, I, I definitely would, and, I, and I, I've talked to the producers a bit about yeah, jumping on another season, which which I think I think I would, and I think it'd be more fun and. I probably have a better reflection on if I can actually enjoy a performance like that. I still don't think I can. I'd be too. I'm I'm nervous always, so I just feel like I'd still have the you know the nerves and the intensity. Maybe I could I could play around a bit more on the show, but I definitely love to to go back. I mean, Penn and Tellers are still idols, and they treat you so well on the show. They're really 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 good to you. So yeah, I would love to jump back in and do that again. I want to actually first. I'll talk about the nerves um, because. You say there you feel the nerves uh, even when performing now. 
Is it something mm-hmm. where just by doing the performance or you're running through how it's meant to be done in your head, is there just something mechanical about that that means that because you're focusing on it, you're not focusing on the nerves in the moment on stage? Yeah, I mean, as soon as I get up there, they're gone. Like mm. for me, it's it's before the show. And I, you know, I always, I don't know if nerves are the right word to use. It's probably anxious because I really, you know, I'm so fixated on doing well that I'm thinking about it the whole time. Um, once I go up there, I'm usually fine. I say uh, if I, if I like remember a performance, I usually feel like it was a bad show because I usually like, it's it's like I black out. I go on stage, I'm in my zone, I'm, I'm, I'm just my person as a performer and I'm just in my total headspace and I get off stage and I can't like, it was just like, I blacked out. I go out, I do my thing and it's great. But if I can actually physically remember me standing on stage, talking to the audience, I know that was like a bad moment where I knew I was thinking and processing. Cause now when I perform, I don't think I've done the effects like a thousand times. I can do them without thinking about them. They just happen. The rest is just communicating and having a conversation with the audience and having fun. That that comes pretty, pretty naturally to me. So the nerves go away. Uh, but you know, there, there's moments, you know, when something doesn't play well or doesn't go right, or you have a new effect in the show and you start thinking a little bit more than, then you're a little bit more in your, in your head, which makes it harder. But yeah, the, everything fades. I could be sick or I could be having the worst day ever, but the second you go on stage, it's gone. You become adrenaline, super, superhero. I'm kind of going to link to this to myself again. If I, you know, radio show, film intro, whatever. If it goes really badly, I'm going to remember it and kick myself for weeks. There's a show that I did like two, three years ago, which was a complete and utter disaster. And I'm absolutely ashamed of it. It's the worst bit of radio I have ever been a part of. And I, that it still haunts me now. And I still apologize to the person whose show I was covering for how bad it was. Um, it's a whole other story uh, itself. You know, normally if I do a show, I just go, yep, yeah, okay, that was another show. Off we go on to the next one. Yes. And if yes. I do a really good one, I might treat myself to a kebab. But still, um, is there anything that you do to kind of tell yourself that was a good one? Well, I, I haven't treated myself to a kebab lately, but I'm going to add that to the roster. <laughs> a great idea. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say food. I, I'm a big foodie. I love that. So any excuse I can have to have a piece of cake after a show, I mean, I, I do that. You pat yourself on the back. But it's like, it's like you said, another good show is just another show and you keep going. But the bad ones are the ones that weigh on you. So just take all the wins as the wins. Give yourself a little fist bump when you walk on stage and, and, and keep keep trekking for it i think but no i gotta gotta have a kebab (laughs) uh shall we move on to uh the fourth item yes i have a stack of items here uh not to talk about something sad again but i'll talk about another object that has a happy ending i guess that's that's very special to me i have a this talking about death a little bit too much but it's okay it's a positive thing i have this playing card that i've had since i was a little kid and we had this family friend growing up and i carry this with me everywhere every time i do a show uh we had this family friend named anna she was a friend of my mom's and as long as we knew her she had terminal cancer and so we always knew that she was going to pass but she was the most positive wonderful person you could have ever met she was she was a wonderful human being and if you didn't know that she had cancer you never would have known you know kind of thing and she kept outliving the time that the doctors given her she was a fighter a beautiful beautiful human being uh but eventually you know her time had come and she was given i think a few days at the time 
And I was, uh, you know, the same age of I was 13 or 14, just feeling helpless. I never experienced death in my life. I didn't know how to navigate it. I didn't know how to help what I could do kind of thing. And while I was sitting in those thoughts, you know, writing in my journal, trying to figure out, you know, how do I help her? What do I give her? What do I give her family kind of thing? My mom had come into my room and she said, hey, um, Anna called and she wants to know if you'd be willing to come and perform some magic for her. And I just remembered at the time thinking how crazy it was that this human being has a few days left on earth and what she wants is me to come and perform for her. And I did, you know, I went to her place and she signed this card and I ended up bringing it with me. And that for me, it's like all of these objects, like I'm saying, are just just reminders to really help me take a step back and have those positive thoughts that, you know, good or bad, show aside, whatever it is, like there's this much, much bigger meaning to what you do. And it's in these little moments. It's not, you know, the day you win a trophy. It's not the day you get a standing ovation. It's these moments where you connect with people. And it reminds me that what I do is a gift. What I get to give to people is a wonderful, wonderful thing that resonates with them. And, and it's not about how many applause I get. It's about how many people I connect with. And uh, so I hold on to this. Yeah, that's that object. Is that another thing that you kind of carry around with you as well and take with you from place to place? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I try to I keep it in a little box that, you know, I've never wanted to damage it. But for the most part, I keep like the bucket list and the card with me as I travel. And these are all either in my room or with me while I'm on the road as, as little reminders. And it's it's becomes a lot harder for me to beat myself up when I have these beautiful things surrounding me. Are they also things that help to stave away the nerves or that anxiety that you mentioned? Um. I think in in some sense, it, it can give me a reminder, like a pat on the shoulder of you've done this before, you're going to be fine, like you're going to be okay. But I, I think most of that anxiety just comes from, you know, doing well in this present moment. So it's, it's a bit hard to shake that sometimes. But when it comes to going through things, I'd say more in the personal aspect of life, it's a good reminder of like, no, nah, you've done this before, kid, mm-hmm. you're going to be okay, you can get through it kind of thing. So, so it's a bit of both. The story behind the card, was that a really formative moment for you in terms of realizing you know people wanted to see you perform yeah i i i think the older i've gotten the more special that was and i don't think i internalized this as much when i was a kid about this thing happening like i went over you know i did a little show in her living room she'd signed the card uh, a couple of days later she passed and it was just this thing that happened this thing that happened and uh as I've got older, the more shows I've done, the more times I've looked at this card, it's become more special and realizing, you know, how, how important it is to have these connections with human beings and such. So the, the value of that has definitely changed as I got older. I don't think I really realized how special that moment was it, until, you know, I appreciated, you know, life and individuals more as I've gotten older and could actually internalize that. It was my first experience with death in my life. So I think I was really fixated on trying to understand those feelings as a kid and write that out rather than, you know, take advantage of the moment that happened before she passed. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. Is that one of the positives then of looking back at not just this, but various other things, also going back to the journals, looking back and, as you say, being able to internalize certain things and then further develop from them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are these are all different like statues and pieces and puzzles of, of my life that have really signified important things or really little things or just things that have been super valuable to me. So, yeah, it, it's huge to be able to look back at these. And that's like why I say having I've never had them all in one place and be able to sit here and look at this table. That's just, you know, filled with these things that are super special to me. Um, it's it's 
amazing you know like and these these are what i'm saying by little things like these are the things that surround you on your journey that you see that make your life you know much more valuable and it's about these little things so it's it's really special for me to be able to take them all in so yeah thank you for inviting me first of all to bring the items out because I'm, I'm super stoked to be able to see them all like this we'll talk a bit about kind of what's going through your head uh looking at them all uh, kind of towards the end of the conversation um but for now shall we move on to your final item yeah, this is gonna be a tough one because I I got I got a couple things. Let's uh let's do this one because it's a it's cool. It's a physical one. I have a shoe. We're gonna talk about this. I was thinking of doing a physical or non physical item, but since it's here, uh, these were the shoes that I wore the first time I did the upside down straight jacket escape. They've got the you can see the you know the glow tape on the bottom. They suspended me up in the dark kind of thing, and I. Uh, I have these on my shelf, like with my straight jacket that I looked at. And for me, it was really just like a really cool thing to signify anything to do with that escape. That performance whatsoever is a really, really good piece for me. Because like I said, at that time, there was a lot of cooks in the kitchen telling me what direction to go and what to do with my life. And when I when I started the concept of the straight jacket, so essentially uh, this organization had come forward to me. They were in connection with my school and they say, hey, you know, we're, we have this organization that raises funds and awareness for children in developing countries with severe acute malnutrition. And we're going to have this big show. The mayor, the mayor's going to be this performance. Can you come up with a piece of magic or some way to connect with people? It's just something to kind of tell a story. And, and at the time, I think they were picturing that I would come up with some card trick with a story. Not that that would have been bad, but they were just saying, you know, come up with something cute and that way we can showcase a kid in the show kind of thing. And at the same time, I was kind of falling into the world of Harry Houdini. So in my head, the concept just clicked, hey, let's let's do an upside down straight jacket escape. We'll tell the story of these kids that are trapped in their situation. I had it narrated to music with the story of this child growing up. And it was this really beautiful thing. But at the time, I, I had no idea. I started hanging upside down on monkey bars and playgrounds. Like, that's where I started for this routine. I had no grasp of field. Then I started doing rope escapes in the hallway to get comfortable doing escapes and that kind of thing. And it was just this really random concept. And it was really, really difficult for me to get any help because I was a kid and everyone just wanted me to be a kid. All of my, you know, a lot of my mentors and people in my life that were helping me were like, no, just stick to the car tricks, do something fun, do this, do this act. Like, like, don't, don't, don't do that. You don't want to do that. That's just, that's not for you. That's not your image. That's not your brand. And it was, you know, really hard to do something that I'd never done before. That was such this challenge for me for the first time ever without help. So, I mean, obviously I did have people that ended up, you know, having the conversations and giving me the tools, but a lot of it was was on my own. Like I, I did the research to get sponsors to pay for the rigging equipment and found a rigger who was willing to do it and train myself in a circus gym. And all of these things were just pieces that I, I did for myself. And and there were just so many factors. Everyone talked me out of it. Like I had mentors in Vegas calling my mentor Sierra saying, you need to tell her not to do this. It's not for her. It's not right. She's going to, you know, this isn't good for her career kind of thing. And 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 I did it. And there were so many factors, you know, that should have steered me away even afterwards. Like, I think the first time I performed this, like, you could hear a mix. Like, I remember being upside down with, like, strobe lights flashing in my face and you're spinning upside down. You could hear both, like, all these reactions. Like, I really, really remember hearing people being amazed and applauding and being surprised. But then you also heard people laughing. You know, you hear all these different things. because It's so different. 
And most of the time people have never seen this before. And until you like, you make something out of this thing that you're creating, it's usually just weird. And at the time it was just weird. And the first time I performed it, I remember just like feeling all these emotions of, you know, satisfaction and defeat, but also nothing. And also, you know, internalizing, hearing like my peers laugh at this thing that I had chased for six months, you know, that I trained for, uh, you know, and years later, it's, you know, the thing that I'm most known for like I did it it was on my first national tv appearance it's taken me around the world it's you know it hangs on my wall like this is a very very big significant part of my repertoire and my career but it was really really hard to get there in the beginning so having anything that kind of signifies that jump really really helps me trust my gut and that could have been the wrong thing to do it could have I, I don't know there's a lot of decisions I can make it as, as a person that will be wrong when I get older but that was a really good staple in time of saying, no, you trusted your gut and it got you here. And how many other times can you trust your gut and where will you be in the future once you do that? How old were you at the time? Oh, when I performed it, 14. What you've just described is the big feel-good underdog movie hit. That's that's what yeah. that entire narrative is. The one where, you know, like Rocky, where everyone punches the air and is so glad that the person has succeeded. And... You were saying there about what some of your peers were saying or that you could hear some laughter when it was happening. You look at where yeah. you are now and that you say you've successfully performed this in so many other places that that was broadcast on national TV. You've now performed in front of Penn and Teller. You've performed in Vegas and Hollywood and in Europe as well. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've succeeded at, at this moment in time obviously you've got so much more where you can progress but do you feel you're successful at this moment in time i do yeah uh, i think i need a lot of reminders both from you know other people and myself sometimes but i, I do feel like I, I have yeah do you feel that i don't know if there if it's the right phrasing we those people who were laughing were you trying to rise above them were you trying to, to prove them wrong i guess you know i i think i really did did tune it out like it, it hurts and those are some things that stick with them and, and obviously like i'm gonna remember that like one day of laughter for a lot longer than i'll remember the thousand days of applause so that does does stick with me but for me it was it was always really disconnected like my success and my career and my goals were very much just just for me and it's about my passion so I really tried hard to just not think about that and tune it out and keep you know tracking forward and it was weird it's like it was kind of like a movie moment when when Penn and Teller came out I had you know people I never even spoke to in high school all of a sudden like calling me and being like yo I remember you doing this in school I always knew you were going to succeed like that's so cool and like you know, there were even like teachers that didn't like it or my, you know, at the time that did, thought it was weird and stuff that were also like in turn, like tweeting me and calling me and saying that you, we always knew that you were going to be a success kind of thing. And it was never like a, like a, you know, a vengeful, envious kind of you know, stride forward. Mm. It was a little bit of like, okay, that's just, that's how it is. And it's one of those things that it's like, until you're, you're cool enough, you're weird. And I'm also okay if, if I'm weird, I, I am weird. So. It's it's nice to see, you know, someone admit it in that way and just go, yeah, I'm weird and absolutely run with it. Um, you know, as going back earlier uh, to an interview that you had, you said you're the weird kid who tied herself to a chair in the hallway. And you very much seem to have embraced that and ran with it and continue to do so. Yeah, you, you have to. And and. I mean, I don't get it perfect. As I've gotten older, it's been harder. Like 
I think sometimes, you know, you, you care a lot more, you know, the, the bigger brand you have, the more eyes you have on you. And then, then you care more about this post you make, this show you do, this decision you make. Whereas when you're a kid, it's like, you never think you're going to make anything of it. You hope you do, but you never know. So you care a lot less about what people say. So as I've gotten older, it's, it's been more of a challenge to just be weird and okay with it. But it's something I'm navigating. And these are obviously all like things that remind me that it's okay to just, just be weird. Who cares, you know? Do you find that as you've got older, you've become more conscious of the people around you and the wider sphere, particularly, as you say, as your audience has grown? Yeah, like, I, I mean, there's definitely more eyes on me now and, and a lot of people that are expecting different things or, they, you know, think that I'm going to do this or succeed in this way. And it's really great to have, you know, I think now the difference is I, I have a fan base is I don't just have like, you know, friends and then people that think I'm strange. I actually have people that, you know, you know, recognize me walking down the street or follow all the stuff I do or, you know, drive to come see my shows. And that's a really, really cool thing. But so it's still about how do I you know, create a good branded fan base, but at the same time, still just have that disconnect where I'm still doing my thing because I never wanted to be a job. I always wanted to be a passion and I want everything that I do, you know, to just be around, you know, this thing that I love. And so care a little bit less. It's it's hard sometimes. I definitely, definitely overthink the decisions I make a lot more now that I've got so many more people watching and so many more people that I want to inspire and say the right things to, but it's, uh, it's it's harder doing it now in the public eye for sure, but it's something I, I, I take a step back to to kind of analyze. Is it important then, and again, this is going back to something you said earlier on when you were talking about your family and your friends being around you and with you, is it important then that you still continue to surround yourself with those people, with the people that you're comfortable around? Oh, oh, definitely. And like back home here, I, I have like my magic family, like my my mentor and uh, Sean, his uh, Canadian magician named Sean Farfar. And Sean's known me since I was a kid. And then my other like magic siblings. And uh, whenever I come home, he's got a theater out here and I spend my time there. And for me, it's like the perfect you know, place to just be myself, perfect ego check kind of thing. Like they'll, they'll knock me into my place for sure, but it's just a perfect creative loving headspace where I get to come home and be around these people that are passionate about what I'm passionate about that have known me since I was a kid. And like, you can kind of just as authentic as you can be in front of, you know, your fans or on stage, you still kind of have a mask on You're amplified, you're on in some sense, but these are just the people that like get that raw unmasked version of you. And they just get it. Like you just become a kid again. You just got to be where you are, wherever you are. And you're not, you're not the Gabriella Lester. You're not this person chasing this goal, doing this thing, this person on stage. You're just the kid in sweatpants sitting on the couch, still holding a deck of cards, still dreaming about the same thing, still, you know, loving the same damn hobby. Uh, so for me, yeah, those people make it make the whole thing matter. Is that where you become, I guess, most distanced from the rest of the outside world and where you find something most freeing? Yeah, yeah. And I spend a lot of time, too, when I'm home kind of by myself because, you know, when I'm out doing shows or whatever, it's a lot of like, go, go, go. You're surrounded by people all the time. You're surrounded by this this constant praise you're with, you know, billionaires and models and celebrities and these people you grew up seeing on TV and they all love you. And it's and then you come back home and you're like, no one again. And it's a bit sometimes it's a slap in the face, but it's also OK to be to be no one because you you are, you know, and all people are the same, you know, not one person is more important than another. We're all human beings. We all have equal lives, you know, and you're just this person. So uh, sometimes it's hard to make that adjustment, but I work really hard to just come home and, you know, spend time by myself and be okay with being alone and just 
you know, be okay with being the kid that sits in the car writing in her journal because that's, you know, that is what I am. You know, you're not, you're not this character. You're not, nobody's a god. Just one more question. Uh, the shoes, as you say, from the very first time you performed uh, the straight jacket trick, do you look mm-hmm. at those and think about how that trick has progressed? All the other times that you've performed it, where I don't know what the most, uh, how recently you've performed it, but if you were to compare that performance to the very first one, is that something that you think about? Well, I think that I was a bit silly at the time for doing it in heels because that was probably the most dangerous part of the act <laughs> was walking out of the stage. Uh, so in that sense, I progressed. I wear flat shoes like a normal person now. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I definitely think about it all the time and I see these every day as I leave my house or I see pictures of it or pieces of it. And, and it's, you know, a big staple in my repertoire now. So I definitely think about the progress that I made, but it was also like that performance had a bigger cause, you know, I was doing that for a big nonprofit organization. And then I fell in love with working with nonprofits and, you know, chasing sponsors and doing those things. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a staple for a lot of things for me and, uh, yeah, the effect has progressed into so many beautiful things, and I've done it in some of my favorite theaters in the world, and uh, it's crazy, yeah. Shall we go over your items one more time? Yeah, so, yeah, they're all here. I have uh, my bucket list that I made for my kid, and then I have the ring from Penn & Teller's Fool Us. I've got this, you get to see it. And then I have the playing card uh, that our family friend Anna signed. I have my journal and I have a pair of shoes from my first straight jacket performance. What goes through your mind when you kind of, But I mean, normally I say when you read all those back, but particularly for you right now, when you look at them all laid out in front of you. I, it's really special, I think, because these are just objects for me, but like the amount of stories that are behind all these objects, the amount of feelings, the amount of journals I went through processing all these objects is is really, really significant for me in my life. And I mean, I've got some other stuff here, too. Uh, that's just a really, you know, good reflection of, uh, you know, where I've been as a person, all the steps that I've taken to get where I am. And like you said, I, I do feel like I'm successful now, but it's it's all these little pieces and all these little stories and objects that I have in my life that have gotten me there. And one of these objects, you know, alone is far more and, and what that object presents represents is far more important than you know any money prize I could win any trophy I could get any show I could do like this is where it's at like all these little steps these little journeys these little interactions that I've had along the way to get me to where I am is is why I do what I do and it, and it's really cool to remember that and I love looking at these Gabriella thank you so so much for your time it's been wonderful to talk to you oh thank you Jamie I really appreciate it And there we have it, the mental health shelf of Gabriella Lester. I think, for me, that might be one of the most fun interviews I've ever done. In any context, I just had a really, really good time with it. And, of course, it helps that Gabriella is a very lovely person indeed. Um, I had so much more, though, that I wanted to ask, but it would have either led to another tangent, it would have been irrelevant, or there just wasn't enough time. So I just need an excuse to get guests back, it seems. Uh, A second layer to the shelf, the mental health shelving unit doesn't exactly have the same ring to it, I don't think. Anyway, um, it was also, I think, a case for me of the right interview at the right time, particularly with some of those points about finding your people, reacting to good and bad shows, and kind of slightly embracing that weirdness as well. And it was just a good conversation, I think, just after I'd returned from two weeks in London for the film festival um, there as press, and 
the first couple of days, for my mind at least, were pretty rough. Not from imposter syndrome, but it may have been that. But as I've been putting it, just a lot of doubt and uncertainty in my mind as to why I was even there in the first place. And, of course, the way to get around it was just talking to people. You're surrounded by people who kind of have the same interests and passions. Just put yourself out there, talk to them. But, of course, that is much more often than not easier said than done. But yeah, once over that anxiety and putting myself out there talking to people, I had a rather nice time indeed, and saw some pretty smashing films as well. But this has already been put much better in a number of other places before, I think in particular of Elsie Fisher's character in 8th Grade, the YouTube videos that she uploads. If you've not had the pleasure of seeing 8th Grade, do check it out, it's an absolute gem of a film. Anyway... I'm already rambling, so let's wrap things up properly, shall we? Thank you once again to Gabriella for joining me. An absolute pleasure to talk to her, and there was so much more that I could have asked. If you want to find more from her or see any of her work, I'll link her socials and YouTube channel in the description of this podcast, wherever that may be, wherever you're listening. And of course, thank you to you for listening as well. It's very much appreciated, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. Uh, For now, I'll say goodbye, and hopefully I'll be back next month with another guest, another set of items, and another mental health shelf.